Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to Mind Love, episode 228. Today's episode is all about how movement affects your mind. It conceptualizes the body as sort of this self-healing, you know, mechanism where we can tap into that self-healing with movement. And I think that's a really beautiful concept to think about. You know, um, like you said, yeah, we can we can eat nutritious food, we can eat organic, healthy food, whole foods, but there there are some neurochemicals that are stimulated by exercise that we can't get from food. And these really help to keep both the body and the brain in in perfect balance. Turn up your frequency with Mind Love. Bite-sized brain hacks for seekers, dreamers, and doers. It's time to give your mind a little love with your host, Melissa Monti. It's a new day, a new episode, and a new opportunity to subscribe to the podcast. You're listening for the first time. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you always know about new episodes. Plus, it makes you one of my favorite people because the more subscribers I have, the more I attract amazing guests to help better serve you. So don't forget to subscribe. Today, I'm stoked to share a review from Bungie Babe who says, Oh, I love listening to your interviews so I can learn and grow my own heart, mind, and body. Also, I love your laugh and how you share so vulnerably. Keep shining your light. Thank you, thank you, thank you for taking the time to leave this review. As you guys know, they just totally light up my world and make me so excited to keep doing what I'm doing. So thanks for taking a couple minutes out of your day to really change my entire week. And now let's get to the show. How do you feel about exercise? I feel like I know three kinds of people. Those who loathe exercise, those who seem to almost naturally fit it into their lives, and those who are obsessive about it as though they're beating their bodies into submission. I used to be that last one. I had such body dysmorphia that I remember feeling fat when I was 103 pounds. Exercise was weight management and body sculpting. But did you know that exercise affects more than just your body? it has powerful effects on the mind as well. I'm sure you've heard about the effects of endorphins that are released in the brain when you exercise. They relieve stress and boost your mood. I don't tend to notice endorphins as much when I work out, but I definitely notice when I'm not getting them regularly. I really wonder what our world would be like right now if those giving health advice the last two years had focused on advice that actually improves our well-being. But who am I kidding? There's no money in that. Endorphins aren't just these cute little happy chemicals. They're peptides produced by the brain that bind to the brain's opiate receptors. This is really cool. In the 1980s, scientists were studying how and why opioids worked. Well, they found that the body has special receptors that bind to opioids to block pain signals. Endorphins bind to those same centers and relieve pain, which can also be a powerful way to combat addiction. 
Because with exercise, you're kind of getting your fix already. But the effects that movement and exercise have on the brain don't just stop at endorphins. Exercise can aid in mental health symptoms like depression and anxiety. It decreases rates of addiction, and it can even prevent dementia. It's funny how obsessive people can get about exercising to sculpt their bodies. But over time, your body will change, regardless of how much you work out. And I think for most of us, the way our bodies look becomes less important over time, which is why people lose their workout routine when they age. But what about thinking clearly and just feeling good about life or keeping your sanity? Your mind is what connects your soul to reality. It's what perceives your world. It interprets your experience. It understands your relationships and love and beauty and excitement. If you lose your mind, then what's left of your experience here? So today we're talking about how movement affects your mind and how to create movement routines that you actually want to do. Our guest is Jennifer Heiss, PhD, an expert in brain health. She's an associate professor and Canada Research Chair in Brain Health and Aging in the Department of Kinesiology at McMaster University. She directs the NeuroFit Lab, which has attracted over $1 million to support her research program on the effects of exercise on brain health. Her award-winning research examines the effects of physical activity on brain function to promote mental health and cognition in young adults, older adults, and individuals with Alzheimer's disease. And if that's not enough to impress you, she's the author of Move the Body, Heal the Mind. So three key things we will learn are how the hypothalamus makes it difficult to maintain weight, how exercise can help you overcome anxiety, depression, and dementia, and improve focus, creativity, and sleep, and specific exercise routines to enhance and boost creativity. And if this is your first time giving your mind a little love, I have a few goodies for you. First, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And second, sign up for the Morning Mind Love. Think of it like a weekday oracle from your highest self to help you start each day with a positive focus. Plus, you'll get two gifts absolutely free, a 30-minute binaural meditation and 30 days of journaling prompts to help you remember who you truly are. So join over 9,000 people and go to mindlove.com to sign up or text the word MORNING to 33777. And now let's welcome Dr. Jennifer Heise to the show. Hi, nice to be here. So what got you interested in devoting research to the connection between exercise and the brain? I've always been really fascinated in how the brain represents our complex emotions and feelings. Like how does how do tiny brain cells do this, right? And this was the focus of my PhD work. And at the time, my thesis was on the fundamentals of neuroscience. So how does the brain represent who we are? But it became very clear to me something wasn't quite right with my own brain while I was while I was studying. I was experiencing some pretty severe anxiety. And I went to the school doctor and didn't really find what I what I was hoping for or any relief for my symptoms. And a friend recommended uh, I try riding their rusty old road bike and the the cycling soothed my mind. And so this not only sparked a shift in my personal life where 
movement became like a really fundamental focus, but also a shift in my professional life where instead of just researching the fundamentals of neuroscience, I became really interested in the effects of exercise on the brain too. So if exercise is just so good for us, (laughs) then why do so many people have like this natural resistance to it? Yeah, well, it's actually built into our brain. So the brain has this biological resistance against exercising. So of course, we all know it's good for us, but the brain resists. And why does it resist? Well, it's built, it's designed to conserve energy. So if we think back to the time when the brain evolved, it was a very different time when we needed to expend a lot of energy to hunt and gather our food. And so any extravagant movement, any voluntary movement was seen as an extravagant expense and the brain really didn't want you to do it. And so it would resist it. But flash forward now when, you know, we don't really need to move to survive. We can hop in the car, go to the grocery store and get the groceries. You know, we don't have to hunt and gather our food anymore. And so all uh, voluntary exercise is seen as an extravagant expense and the brain really resists it. it. It essentially makes us lazy. So is there a certain point where if we engage in exercise enough that that resistance falls away because I have noticed like my husband and I love working out mm-hmm. and I was like especially about a year ago through my whole pregnancy I did yoga almost every day except for brief times when I was <laughs> uh, the like severe exhaustion and even now I I definitely make uh, exercise a priority mm-hmm. I do yoga twice a week now uh, and I go on long walks but it's interesting because I can look back now and see that I almost had this judgment where I'm like, I don't get what your problem is. Why can't you just work out? And now that I have a baby, I'm like, okay, I see where you're coming from. I, I've still been working out for so long that it, it it feels foreign to me to just not do it at all. But it's definitely less than I used to, which it used to be every day. Mm-hmm. So when does that start to change? Or is there a way that we can consciously change our relationship to it? Yeah, so I think, you know, like you, exercising for me is just part of my life. It's part of my identity. And I turn to it because it provides me so much relief, like from stress of life, from anxiety. But it's just like a soothing part of my day. But you're right, it becomes really difficult to fit in, especially when we get busy and we have multiple competing demands, like babies and jobs, and and the time seems to shrink. And so for a lot of people, you know, if you have the time, it's easy to fit it in. But often, you know, we have all these competing demands and it's difficult to fit it in. So some really simple hacks are, you know, just adding it in your calendar ahead of time and just making the time for it before your calendar fills up with all your other appointments and meetings and treating it like a, like a priority, like you would any other appointment. And another thing that's really just a, a really simple thing to do is have your plan already set out so like for you you have a plan you want it you you go to yoga and and the instructor instructs you and so it it essentially takes the thinking out of it which is like that extra barrier to get over right so if you're not going to a class having a plan about what you're going to do during your exercise where with whom that really takes out the guessing game so that you have like we don't realize how much willpower it requires to like 
make the exercise plan, make the commitment, think about what we're going to do. And so if you do that ahead of time, you have more willpower to do the actual movement itself, which it really saves you big time. Yeah, that's what I love about apps like ClassPass or MindBody is you can just sit there on Sunday and and (laughs) plan out your whole week and it gets exciting, especially when you don't have to do it right then. (laughs) Mm -hmm. There's like a little bit of distance. You're like, yeah, of course I want to do this. But then on the morning (laughs) of, you're like, I signed up for that. I was excited about that. But then (laughs) once you get there and you get into it, it's, it's so much different. But when we're talking about And we're going to get into all of the positive effects that exercise has on the brain. But when we're talking about actually receiving these benefits, what is the definition of exercise then? Is it something where you really get your heart rate up or is it just kind of light movement? Mm-hmm. Well, it really depends on what you're what you're going for. So, it can be as simple as like a, a two minute movement break. So, for for most of us, we're sitting most of the day uh, and lately in front of computer screens. And so, um, what happens when we sit for a prolonged period of time is that the brain is starved of vital nutrients that it needs, like oxygenated blood flow, and just a simple movement break. It doesn't have to be intensive. Just a two minute movement break every 30 minutes is enough to restore the brain's blood flow so that you can focus better. You're less mind-watering, less daydreamy, and you can be more productive at work. Also, um, when we think about a self-paced walk, so you mentioned you like walking, um, something as simple as a 10-minute self-paced walk is enough to boost creativity. So it depends it really depends on what you're going for. If you if you want to really optimize brain health to prevent things like dementia, then it does help to pick up the pace. Uh, what our research shows is that interval walking, so you could you could tweak your regular walk with intervals. And so what does this mean? So basically you're picking up the pace intermittently. So like between light posts or adding in a few hills, just enough to get your heart rate up to so that it's difficult for you to have a conversation. And the research shows that this produces a, a chemical in the muscles called lactate. And you've probably heard of lactic acid associated with the burning muscles. Recent research shows that actually lactate is maybe one of the greatest promoters of neuroplasticity to prevent things like dementia and to boost memory. And so to get the lactate, we need to exercise at a more vigorous intensity. So it it goes back to really what your end goal is. And um, in my book, I talk about different ways that we can use the research to infuse the research into our workouts to make them more uh, powerful effects on the brain. Ooh, I'm excited to get into that. But I want to cover something that I read in your book that I found really fascinating. How does the, you talked about how the hypothalamus actually can make it difficult for us to maintain weight because even when we're completely sedentary, it assumes that we have some sort of movement. Mm -hmm. Can you Mm -hmm. go deeper on that? We're all here just trying to live our best lives, right? And while you're here listening to a podcast, you might feel like you're on the right track, but then you visit family or you have a work deadline or something unexpected comes up and you're all stressed out and it feels like all the work is out the window. 
That's why it's so important to consciously curate what you can control, like who you surround yourself with, what you watch, what you listen to. So I'm going to add another podcast to your toolbox, The Dr. John Deloney Show. He has a PhD in counseling and has been sitting with hurting people for 20 years. He shares practical advice for everything from how to connect with people, how to face depression, overcome anxiety, and learn just what it means to be well. But what's really cool about his show is you can even leave a voicemail or send an email and he'll address your topic or question about mental or emotional help on the show. So no matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Deloney show is here for you. Listen to the Dr. John Deloney show wherever you get your podcasts or follow the link on the website. I'm constantly sharing with my clients to stop searching in life and instead start aligning. It's true with purpose, with relationships, with higher versions of yourself, and it's also true for hiring. The best way to search is actually just to match with Indeed. Indeed is your one-stop hiring platform with millions of job seekers visiting every month, and their powerful matching engine helps you find quality candidates fast. Plus, Indeed lets you schedule interviews, screen applicants, and message candidates all in one place. But Indeed isn't just about speed. They also deliver quality. According to a recent Indeed survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. I love Indeed because it makes hiring so much easier. I'm all about alignment in all areas of my life, and that includes people I hire to work in my business. So I need a hiring partner that makes it simple to find candidates with the right skills. And that's Indeed. And what's really cool is Indeed's matching engine gets smarter the more you use it, learning from your preferences and over 140 million qualifications. Plus, I love that I can do all my hiring in one place. It's just one less thing to keep track of between all of the other things. So join over 3.5 million businesses worldwide who rely on Indeed to find great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash mindlove. Just go to Indeed.com slash mindlove right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mindlove. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You talked about how the hypothalamus actually can make it difficult for us to maintain weight because even when we're completely sedentary, it assumes that we have some sort of movement. Mm -hmm. Can you Mm -hmm. go deeper on that? Yeah, this is a really fascinating discovery. Our brain evolved at a time when we were expending, we needed to expend a lot of energy to hunt and gather food. And so we were by default, moving more. And the brain assumed we would be moving at least a moderate amount. And so nowadays we we can get by with not moving a moderate amount, but the brain as a relic of that evolutionary past, it still assumes we're moving that much. And so instead of having like the moderate dial be like moderate and then there be a low dial being sedentary, The brain doesn't have that low dial. And so it assumes you're moderate and sets your hunger dial to moderate, even if you're low. So what that means is that if you're, if you're eating more than you're moving, you're going to gain weight. That's just a simple formula. And if you're not moving moderately, then your appetite is going to be more uh, than than what you need, what you're expending. Um, So unfortunately, this is the brain to blame, uh, but we do need to move. It helps, really helps to manage our weight. 
So when we have something going on in our bodies, how do we know if what we're experiencing is due to our lack of movement or would the best thing be to just say, oh, well, if you're not moving, then there's going to be an imbalance. Well, if we think about just even the hypothalamus, like that's really the hypothalamus sets our homeostatic happy place. So that really sets the balance within the body. And if that brain region is already assuming that we're moving, that sort of tells you that we need to be moving at least moderately to so that the body and the brain can be in balance. And um, without that movement, the brain doesn't get the vital nutrients that it needs to thrive. I think that's so important because so many people think of nutrients as just the nutrition that they're putting in their bodies. Mm -hmm. And I will say that I think most people are even lacking nutrients there if they're mm -hmm. eating processed foods or, I mean, even our soil is depleted. So even when you're eating a whole food diet, it's easy to be mm -hmm. low on nutrients. But one thing I think is so important is to remember that movement gives us nutrients. Being mm -hmm. outside stimulates our body to create vitamin D. So there's just, mm -hmm. we're taking in nutrients from so many other places other than just our food. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it conceptualizes the body as sort of this self-healing you know, mechanism where we can tap into that self-healing with movement. And I think that's a really beautiful concept to think about. Like you said, yeah, we can we can eat nutritious food, we can eat organic, healthy food, whole foods, but there are some neurochemicals that are stimulated by exercise that we can't get from food. And these really help to keep both the body and the brain in in perfect balance. So we set, talked earlier about how depending on what your goal is, like if you're looking to prevent dementia or if you're looking to sleep better or boost creativity, there's different types of movement for that. Mm -hmm. But I'm wondering, are there also different types of movements that are right for specific people? And for example, one thing, my cousin was researching something. I wish I could remember what she was, but she, she came to me and she's like, oh my gosh, I, I just learned that for my particular body, I should be doing more low intensity workouts mm. and, and things like that. And I'll have to ask her where she got that information mm. from. But what have you learned about uh, exercise being certain types of exercise, maybe being better for certain types of bodies? Well, I think it comes down to the stress tolerance of your body. So we all have our own unique stress tolerance and that depends on like our current fitness level. So two people could be doing the same workout and one person feels amazing and the other person could feel terrible because one is working out in their comfort zone or just slightly above it and the other one is working out way above it. And so I think we can use this this exercise stress tolerance as a as an indicator of where we need to be. So when we think about exercising, exercise is technically a physical stressor. It pushes the body out of homeostasis, but this is really what we need. It's good stress. We need it to adapt and grow stronger into the strongest version of ourselves. And so if we don't push ourselves enough, then we don't change. We stay the same. If we push ourselves too much, then that can cause stress overload, what we call allostatic load. And this this can actually damage and injure the body. And so we want to be sort of right around that 
sweet spot where it's comfortably challenging for you. And that's so personal. So how do you determine what's comfortably challenging for you? Well, we can use we can use something called the talk test where if you're having, let's say we're having a conversation here, you and I are talking very comfortably, but let's say we started to pick up the pace to the point where I could only get out a few words. You know, I couldn't do the full sentence. That's where we want to be. That's the comfortably challenging place. And for you and I, that could be at a totally different intensity. And that's okay because it's the intensity our individual bodies need to adapt and grow. And so I do make a really strong point in the book that this is a very personal journey and what you may need to do to improve your fitness and enhance your health may may look totally different than somebody else's and that's okay. So when people think of things like depression and anxiety, how can exercise alleviate symptoms of some of those conditions? Mm -hmm. Especially when I know... I've had depression before and sometimes exercise feels like the absolute worst thing in the world, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but Mm -hmm. it's so helpful to bring you out of it. So Mm -hmm. first, what are some of the effects that exercise has on these mental health conditions? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, we can start with depression. So you're right. There's this mental health paradox, right? We discovered it in our research on the pandemic. So we conducted a survey with 1600 people right at the start of the pandemic, just to get a pulse, you know, how are you doing? Are you able to maintain your activity level? And like, what's your mental health like? Not surprisingly, stress levels were high, anxiety, depression were high, physical activity was low. People who were able to maintain their activity level were faring better. And there was a shift in why people wanted to work out. So this was kind of interesting. Instead of wanting to work out to look good, they wanted to work out to feel good. But there was this catch, this kind of catch 22, where people wanted to work out to improve their mental health, but their mental health was getting in the way. So they were too stressed or anxious to do it. And they often lacked the motivation, which is a symptom of depression. And so to your point, you know, de- exercise is really beneficial for depression. However, it's it can be really difficult to get moving when you're in a depressive state, when you're feeling low. And so I always say the mantra needs to be, you know, some is better than none. We need this mental health mode of exercise where we're not thinking about performance. We're just thinking about one step at a time and every step counts. And it counts so much, especially for things like depression. For a lot of us, Depression stems from stress, our reaction and vulnerability to stressors in our life. And there is this type subclass of depression called it's drug resistant depression. And what happens is that it, it, it affects one in three people who take antidepressants. They actually get no symptom relief. They get no relief. So they take their meds and they still are depressed and We call this drug-resistant depression, and the reason why the meds don't work for them is because their depression is caused, it's not caused by the lack of serotonin that the drug fixes, but it's caused by too much inflammation in the body as a result of chronic stress. So when we're experiencing chronic stress, what happens is that that stress starts to damage our cells, this 
launches an immune response, which increases inflammation in the body that gets into the brain. And it starts to disrupt the brain's functioning and disrupt our mood, causing depression. And so for people who have this drug-resistant form of depression, Exercise is the medicine they need. And when research studies take these individuals and they enroll them in an exercise program, they get clinically significant improvements in their mood, um, almost like equivalent to what they would have gotten if they were responding to the medication. So it's, it's really amazing to see when we put antidepressants versus exercise sort of in this head-to-head challenge, we see that it's technically a tie. And for some people, exercise really is the medicine they need. Now, people who do have depression that respond to medication and need their meds, absolutely, they can be super transformative and exercise can help them too. So as an add-on therapy, so exercise with their medication to help reduce some of the negative side effects that they probably don't like and also could help reduce some of the dosage that they're they're taking. So this is a really amazing benefit that exercise has for all forms of depression, whether they're drug resistant or responders too. And so when it comes to anxiety, the benefits of exercise are also extremely profound. And for me, anxiety is sort of, that's the thing that I struggle with. (laughs) This sense of thoughts that turn into worries, that turn into panic. This is something that I've been, you know, trying to manage and using exercise to manage. One of the really amazing things about anxiety and exercise is that they share so many features, right? So if you think about um, if you're feeling anxious, your heart's racing, it's difficult to breathe, like similar to when you're exercising vigorously. And for some people with um, anxiety, they have this anxiety sensitivity where when they feel those feelings, heart racing, difficulty breathing, it makes them even more anxious. So they're like, it, that's what, when it spirals into a panic attack. So you, um, you can see how scary exercise would be for these individuals, but as nature would have it, the vigorous intensity exercise is the medicine that they need. And the reason why is because it acts like an exposure therapy. So physical stress of exercise is different than psychological stress in our life because we can control it. And this is key. So we can control it and help to tone our stress system. And we can use these really quick bursts of activity. So it can just be like a few seconds I'm talking about doing a full sprint, feeling your heart race, feeling it hard to breathe, and then allowing, like stopping the movement, allowing all of that to settle and realizing, you know, okay, my body can be activated and deactivated and I'm still safe. And so this exposes you to those symptoms that are feared and can help take the power away from them so that they're not so stressful and so anxiety provoking. And so this is one way that people who have anxiety or anxiety sensitivity can use exercise. And in the book, I talk about this fear buster workout where you actually, you do a sprint, but you you start out with a slow walk. I call it a wellness walk, which is a self-paced walk. And this light activity, light to moderate activity is enough to boost 
this resiliency factor in the brain called neuropeptide Y. And this neuropeptide Y has been shown to protect the brain from trauma. So people who have traumatic events that have neuropeptide Y in abundance are protected. They don't develop post-traumatic stress disorder. They're protected from it. And we can build more of this neuropeptide Y with light to moderate activity. And so our research has shown just like a 30-minute moderate activity, light to moderate activity is enough to reduce anxiety and so these wellness walks, you ha- I have people do these wellness walks where they're, it's like a self-paced light walk. And then at the very end, they do this fear buster sprint where they expose themselves to the, you know, the heart racing, difficulty breathing, those symptoms that are shared with anxiety. But when their brain is fully resilient with this neuropeptide Y, and so it, it feels even safer. And so there's some fun ways that we can synthesize the science in to our workouts to really maximize the brain health benefits. And that's really what I tried to do in my book. And now for another episode of Lies We've Been Told About Our Health. We've all heard we need eight glasses of water a day, right? Well, hydration isn't actually about water intake. It's about the balance of water and electrolytes so that our bodies are actually absorbing the water instead of just passing it through. A lot of people go for those sugary sports drinks, but let's be real, those do more harm than good. I've found a better solution. Element. It's a zero sugar electrolyte drink that's all about effective hydration. Each pack gives you essential electrolytes like sodium and potassium without the unnecessary additives found in other drinks. The team behind Element includes experts in biochemistry and nutrition, so they really know what they're doing. And it's not just for everyday use either. Elite athletes and teams, Olympic weightlifters, CrossFit champions, Navy SEALs, all rely on it too, which to me says a lot about its effectiveness. Here's what makes them really unique. They recently launched a hot chocolate line with flavors like chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry. Ever since I went alcohol-free, I've been really intentional about luxurious, health-focused drinks so I can sit back and unwind while actually doing good for my body. And the Element Chocolate Chai is great for relaxing in the evening or warming up after winter sports. And you can try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, you'll get your money back, no questions asked. Receive a free Element sample pack with any order when you purchase through drinkelement.com slash mindlove. That's drinklmnt.com slash mindlove to get a free starter pack with any order. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I really need to get something off my chest. Being a mom of a three-year-old boy is really freaking hard, and sometimes it has me questioning my sanity. But then he'll grab my face and call me his sweet little mama. Yes, that's a real thing he says, (laughs) and it will all melt away until I break his banana. I thought I was done with emotionally abusive relationships, but nope. We all carry around stressors, big and small, and when we keep them all bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. For me, just talking things through is hugely helpful, but it's so hard finding friends and family that are unbiased or non-judgmental. And therapy isn't just about dealing with major trauma, you know? 
It's about learning healthy coping mechanisms, setting boundaries, becoming the best version of yourself. And BetterHelp makes it super convenient too. Everything's done online so you can fit therapy sessions around your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash mindlove today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash mindlove. It's funny that you talked about uh, just being able to regulate very similar feelings when you're exercising that you might have with anxiety. And it's like, okay, well, maybe this isn't so bad. And I've actually just started experiencing anxiety for like the first time in my life since having a baby. And Mm -hmm. it's funny though, because one of the things that I use to get myself through those moments, I use all sorts of things. I have a toolbox of things. What's going to work in that moment? A lot of times it's meditation or Mm -hmm. breath work or uh, getting outside. But it's funny because one day it was particularly uncomfortable. And I was like talking to my husband. I was like, I think I need to talk through this. And then I I like stopped and I said, in my twenties, I literally took party drugs at 2am to feel this way. And I thought it was great. Why does it feel so horrible right now? (laughs) It's like the exact same feeling just in a different circumstance. And that was able, I was like, let me just pretend I'm on like MDMA or something. right? (laughs) And all of a sudden I was like, yeah, this doesn't feel so bad. (laughs) Well, and it is, it's reframing, right? It, it, it's, and that just shows you the power of our mind over our body and how, you know, we can, we can look at the same situation from two different lenses and feel completely different. And, and yeah, I mean, you're certainly not alone with anxiety mounting, increasing postpartum. This is, this is a really common thing. It happened to me too. And like, in addition to anxiety, I have uh, some OCD symptoms that just got so severe postpartum, and and this is a, this is really quite common actually, and not not talked about enough. We think about postpartum depression, but we don't really talk about that postpartum anxiety that people can feel, and it's definitely a real thing. So when we are considering, like, do I need drugs or exercise, or probably mm-hmm. a little bit of both? I'm not sure. When you think of the approach to to drugs, and I just want to ask this because my listeners probably know by now that I have a pretty biased point of view because of my experience with drugs. I I was overprescribed multiple things throughout my life. It became a crutch. If somebody were to have told me during that time that, you know, I don't you don't need this. There are other ways. I would have bit their head off because I was so attached to it. Mm-hmm. And so then now I'm, I was able to kind of move out of that and used all these other uh, healthy kind of holistic ways to regulate my internal processes a little bit better. And so there's a possibility. Maybe I, I am a unique circumstance. And maybe I surround myself with a lot of people that have a very similar, unique circumstance, which makes me a little biased. So I want to know, uh, it's my belief or my outlook on life that almost any drug that you take, uh, unless you have some life-threatening conditions, should be used as a crutch. Like you should be looking for a light at the end of the tunnel, a way to kind of move off of that. But I wanted to get a more unbiased opinion mm-hmm. for my listeners. Yeah, no, I think you're right. Like, I'm definitely 
of similar mind to you. How, however, I do, I, I like to caution that because I, I know some people's circumstances do require medication because it's just, it's almost too difficult to cope with the other tools. So absolutely, I'm 100% behind you with this idea that we need multiple ways to control things and multiple tools in our toolbox for our mental health. So like you, I meditate, I use breath work. I talk about how, you know, how we can incorporate more breath work into our movement, not just yoga, but running and cycling and other forms of activity. Um, but yeah, yeah. So I, I like to be pretty careful there, but I see what you mean. Especially, I think there's... There is an issue with overprescribing, especially for mild forms of of depression um, that could probably be managed with lifestyle. And I think that it's not always part of the conversation when someone shows up to a physician's office um, seeking help. Um, and often it takes a lot of courage to even admit that you know you need help, and then they're often just prescribing something to you. It's certainly what my experience was when when I went to the doctor for help for my anxiety. And the first thing that happened was he handed me a prescription. And and I'm I'm very reluctant. I was very reluctant to take it. And still I've still been able, fortunately, to manage my own mental health with without prescription. But the conversation around mental health when someone goes to a physician needs to be more holistic than it probably is now most of the time. And giving the options and giving the evidence of the strength of things like exercise and breath work and meditation and mindfulness, how powerful those things can be at improving our state of mind and our mental health. And yeah, so I'm in your camp. <laughs> So I do like to take a bit of a balanced approach because I know people in my life who need their medication and, you know, they, they supplement it with exercise and it, and, and that works for them. Um, and without their medication, it would just, it, it, they wouldn't be able to function. And so I don't want to exclude them from the conversation because I think everybody's situation is different, but it's so important to talk about these benefits of these things that you can do just for yourself, you know, this healthy body, healthy mind. I totally have no judgment for anybody who chooses the um, pharmaceutical route. Mm -hmm. I just know when I look at my past, like I said, if you would have asked me and when I was in the middle of it, I would not have been able to see outside of what mm -hmm. I was doing. I would have been like, nope, you don't know what I've gone through. You don't know what it feels like in my body. Like, Don't make judgments about what I do. Mm -hmm. and, and I do think I needed to go through that to get to where I am now. Mm -hmm. But I also think that if that is you, and you are like, no, I definitely need this. You're the only person who knows that for sure for yourself. Mm -hmm. But I just encourage people to also, as you mm -hmm. said, explore other things and see mm -hmm. how you feel. Really take note in your body of how you feel. Test a lower dosage while mm -hmm. increasing mindfulness. And if it doesn't feel good, if you can't handle it, go back to what you were doing before. Mm -hmm. But always, I think just relying on something outside of yourself should not be the first response. And I think that mm -hmm. often is with medical professionals. But that brings me to another topic of addiction. But part of the reason I think I would have defended my drug so hardcore is because I was addicted. I've gone through a lot of addictions. Mm -hmm. How? What is the relationship between 
exercise. How can exercise help people move through addiction? All drugs of abuse, they increase dopamine um, to supernatural levels. So the brain has a reward system that's stimulated by dopamine. And it's stimulated by naturally rewarding things like food and sex. These give us pleasure. But drugs of abuse give us lots of pleasure. They give us lots of dopamine. They elevate it to supernatural levels. But the brain needs to be in a delicate balance. And so what happens is with all this too much dopamine, the the reward system essentially goes into lockdown. It starts stripping away its receptors. And so there's, there's still lots of dopamine there, but it's not binding to its receptors. And so it can't make us feel good. The problem with that is that when we strip away those receptors and the reward system locks down, it is. It makes it almost impossible for naturally rewarding things to feel good, like um, you know, close close relationships, food, and sex. They just don't bring the same amount of pleasure or joy to our life that they used to, and this this results in tolerance for the drug, right? And so the the amazing thing about the brain is that it can it can rebuild and restore and replenish when uh, the user stops as you've experienced, you know, but that can take a long time. So you stop using and the cravings kick in because the brain is so used to that super supernatural levels of dopamine. How exercise helps is that exercise increases dopamine. It also helps open up the reward system faster. So it helps replenish the receptors faster and it helps to make them more sensitive so that you can get back to enjoying those simpler things in life faster. And so it really helps speed up the healing process of the reward system. It's really it's a really amazing thing. And in the book I talk about how I think it needs to be absolutely needs to be part of every rehabilitation program, like a structured exercise program, not just at rehab, but something that follows people as they move back into their the real world um, and and something that could could stay with them, I would I would say lifelong would be ideal. Uh, back in December, I kind of did a, a series on addiction because I knew the holidays were coming up and that's when mm-hmm. I feel triggered. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I interviewed this amazing doctor, Dr. Ann Lebke, who had research about, her book is called Dopamine Nation, and she talks about how you know, we know how dopamine, when we hit that dopamine lever in our brain, whether it's through drugs or even social media, mm-hmm. then we feel that kind of reward system. But what her research found out was that every time you do that, it tips the scale and actually depletes you. Uh, mm. So, which I think a lot of us knew on some level, it's like, yeah, you have a Coke binge, you feel like crap the next day. <laughs> but like, but... The fact that it it actually depletes that dopamine for a longer period of time. So it's not just that you you're now used to this higher level, and so normal baseline doesn't feel as good. It's that your normal baseline is actually lower than it was when you started. Mm. Yeah, and it also has a lot to do with the sensitivity of the receptors. So if they're so used to having all this dopamine all at once, the little bitty dopamine that comes from natural stuff just doesn't feel as good. It's just, it really does mess with the whole ecosystem of the reward system. But that ecosystem can be 
cleaned and replenished and refreshed faster with exercise. It's just, it's, it really is an amazing uh, feature of exercise in the brain. So if somebody is experiencing addiction and they're trying to move away from whatever that thing is that they reach for, how do you recommend a practical way to use exercise in order to break this addiction? Is it just that you should, or what's most effective? Mm -hmm. Is it just kind of exercising once a day and that that'll be good enough to kind of ease the transition or should it be more like, exercise during those times where you feel your biggest cravings or are these just all sort of methods for the same result? Yeah. So, um, kind of a bit of both. So for sure with cravings, exercise crushes cravings. Like, so, um, research shows that a 30 minute bout of moderate to vigorous exercise. So that could be like a brisk walk or a cycle or a jog is enough to crush cravings for up to 50 minutes afterwards. So, you know, that's like at least an hour, almost an hour and a half of like reprieve. So during the exercise and then after, but what they show is that when you exercise regularly, that your cravings are crushed even on days when you're not exercising. And so there is this, this build up of strength and preservation that happens when we exercise regularly. So it could be a combination of the two. A lot of people, when asked, they prefer doing a variety of things. So doing a combination of aerobic exercise plus resistance exercise. And that seems to be really a nice balance, something you could do every day to help keep the cravings down. Another really awesome thing about the research on exercise for addiction is using social groups. So like a run club or a CrossFit group, something where there's a new community that you can be with. Because for a lot of people who have addictions, like it's it's not just a drug, but it's like everybody that they know who uses the drug is also, you know, that's their friends and that's their social circle. So not only do they quit the drug, but they often have to quit their friends too. And so building in the social component, it's, it's a little bit easier to incorporate yourself into a new social circle through exercise. And this is like a, a really nice way to, to rebuild not just your brain, but also your life too. Yeah, I recently gave up alcohol uh, mm. about seven months ago. And it's funny because I can kind of look back on the last few years and I've been thinking about giving it up for quite a while <laughs> just because I'm so self-aware. And so it gets to a point where I'm like, okay, yeah, this did seem like it feels good, but I don't feel good today. Or, mm-hmm. you know, I'm about an hour into this like wine night and I don't feel as good as when I was 20 minutes in. And <laughs> and then so I just kind of overeducate myself. But it's funny because for a long time during that period, I was like, well, I don't know, like who am I going to hang out with? Like one of my favorite mm. things to do is go have like, you know, wine Wednesdays or right? <laughs> whatever. <I know. laughs> and then it's like, it's, I don't know, but like the two friends that I hung out with most ended up sort of falling away that year. And and I'm like, is this my subconscious? Just like creating a new friendship circle that of people that don't drink? Because when I finally gave up drinking, almost nobody that I hung out with was drinking anymore. And my cousin had the opposite problem. Uh, I started sharing with her 
the really negative effects of alcohol from this book called Drink. And uh, she she was like, refused to kind of look into it. And she's the kind of person where once she actually does see information, she's like, okay, once I know better, I have to do better. And she's like, damn it, now I have to quit drinking now. <laughs> and so she's like, I still don't know what to do about my friends. So she brings mocktails to parties Ooh. and doesn't tell anybody that they're not alcohol. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I don't drink that much. I used to drink a lot more as like self-medication, but now I don't drink as much, but it is a thing. I think, oh my gosh, like my my girlfriends and I, we go out for dinner and we have a glass of wine. I mean, this is what we do. <laughs> and um, so I'm, I'm still at a glass of wine a week about, <laughs> but I do think about it. Like, do I really need this in my life? Um, it's so yeah, it, I can imagine how difficult it is to when when that's all all your friends do together, right? It's it could be really hard. But um, I do I talk a little bit about the negative effects of alcohol, but it tends to be when we we do it more in excess than just a glass here and there. And uh, this was something that I I hadn't realized was that drinking a lot of people like to have a drink at night to calm down and and alcohol is a sedative, a sedative, so it does it certainly does do that. Um, but what happens is it helps us to fall asleep faster and sleep more soundly during the first part of the night. But during the second part of the night, it disrupts our REM sleep, so our dream sleep. And this is really bad because REM sleep is really important for contextualizing our emotional memories, like our emotional past. And so if we can't properly contextualize that, what happens is that it can lead to like haunted by memories of the past, this feeling of anxiety, regret, and guilt can mount. And so I, I found that really fascinating and that certainly had an impact on me. <laughs> that is fascinating. I remember when I used to drink heavily in my 20s and whenever I'd wake up after a hard night of drinking, I always had this dreaded feeling like I lost my iPhone or something, you know, like, and that was, but like before that losing your iPhone before iCloud, not only are you out like the thousand dollars, but like you lost all your photos and (laughs) contacts, contacts. which I mean, if you're a heavy drinker, that happens quite often. At least it did (laughs) did to me. But one of the, one of the things I learned from a previous episode, I interviewed a sleep doctor and he said everything that you said, and you actually have to stop an hour for every drink that you have before you go to bed mm-hmm. for it to not quite affect that. But the good news is, the better news is, is that, because uh, I used to love a glass of wine for a nightcap. And I remember right. after that episode, I would actually do the hours thing. And then I'm like, screw this. I'm having an 8 p.m. glass of wine, like whatever. <laughs> uh, thinking, because you think that you sleep better because I would feel like I slept deeper, but I would wake up tired because it's yeah. it's like an artificial amount of sleep. But exercise can help your sleep. How? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so exercising more during the day helps us sleep better at night. And this the reason this works is really quite interesting because when we exercise, we use cellular energy. So we break down ATP. And ATP, the byproduct of its metabolism, is a component called adenosine. And the brain has a sensor for adenosine. So the higher adenosine levels get this triggers sleep. And so we can sleep more soundly, more deeply. We have 
bigger delta waves that just make us restored and refreshed when we wake up. We can also like um, tailor sleep so that, um, you know, it's right for our chronotype. So if you're trying to wake up earlier, exercising in the morning is really good or early afternoon. And if you're trying to like sleep later, you might want to exercise in the evening. And so we can play around with the timing of our exercise depending on exactly what to match our chronotype to our lifestyle. It's it's the the research is really quite fascinating. And the studies I talk about in the book, they do this ultra short sleep wake cycle where they sleep like one hour awake two hours and they repeat that like for three days straight. Could you imagine? It's almost like I did that. (laughs) (laughs) I just did that like a year ago. I do not recommend it. (laughs) (laughs) So the last thing I want to touch on, because I love actionable things that actually allow you to live with intention. And one of the things that I'm always looking to do is boost my focus and my creativity. I feel like there's so much that in just the regular life that we all live now that take away from that like we have like the attention span of like a baby goldfish I don't even think it's a goldfish anymore because of these notifications things are just ruining our brains so what are some exercise routines that listeners can try this week including myself that actually enhance our focus and boost our creativity the simple thing is just breaking up our sedentary time. So we could we could sit here and have like an hour meeting, but if we break that up, so you have a, a two-minute movement break every 30 minutes, that helps to replenish the blood flow. I had mentioned that before. But um, research from my lab shows that when we, when we have a five-minute exercise break and compare that to like a social media break where we're just scrolling on our phones or no break, that we are less likely to mind wander, we're more focused, uh, we pay attention to the material we're, we're trying to learn or trying to um, to work on, and we remember that information better. And so just these simple movement breaks, it doesn't have to be like a high-intensity burst, though research shows that that's really beneficial because it increases even more blood flow to the brain. But it can be just a light stretch or a walk around the room or around the block block or something. So the idea is that when we when we want to maintain our focus, we do need to move our body because it helps give the brain the nutrients it needs to stay focused because it takes a lot of brain power to do that. And so when when we think about trying to improve creativity, the brain really has two networks that that function when we are in deep in thought. So one is our inhibitory control. So this is like our one one of our networks where it, it this helps us stay focused, ignore distractions, and you know that's one where we really engage when we're in like deep work. But there's another brain network that's typically in opposition to it, and it's like mental flexibility, and that's what we need to be like, you know, creative and divergent in our thinking and combining ideas. And so we can we can stimulate both of those by engaging in cross training. So when we move our body in creative ways, we train our brain to think more creatively. And so, um, so that this is very personal. But let's say, for example, you your you said you you do walking and you do yoga, and so you know we could 
when we do the same thing over and over, we essentially, we kind of could get into a rut, right? Like a little bit of a, you know, we're sort of gets a little bit in our ways, but by trying a new activity or even just like a new route or even a new yoga class, something like maybe you do vinyasa flow, but you want to try like something different. This can help actually, because you have to pay attention, you have to focus on what you're doing, the new movements that you're doing. You have to like expand your thinking to incorporate this new activity. It actually trains both your focus and creativity at the same time. And so it can really transfer into your work. There's this neat study that shows when we look at athletes, the ones who train in sports that are with net and combat sports, they actually produce more creative athletes than uh, artistic sports like figure skating. And the idea is in net and combat, there's like this, there's this improvisation in the movement, right? You're, you have a, you're, you're defending something against a competitor and their prediction, their movements are unpredictable and variable and you have to react in the moment. Whereas with artistic sports, like it's, it's a predefined set of steps that you memorize and you focus on and you, and so it trains different parts of your brain. And so when we, when we combine different forms of movement, we train different parts of our brain to think focused and think creatively. And that's really, in my opinion, what we need to be really great thinkers is to have the, the two active at the same time. And this creates this feeling of flow, you know, when you're really engaged in a difficult task, but you have, you know, your full repertoire of mental capabilities right there at your at your fingertips and you're really just performing excellently and you can you know, tailor your movement and activity to really hone the, that ability of your brain it's really fascinating that is fascinating and i'm definitely going to be trying that this week so for mm-hmm. listeners that are interested in learning more about how movement affects the brain and your work where's the best place for them to connect with you Yeah, so my book is called Move the Body, Heal the Mind. It's available anywhere books are sold. I'm on Twitter at Jennifer Heiss, H-E-I-S-C. I'm on Instagram at dr.jenniferheiss. And I have a website, uh, jenniferheiss.com. All the links for this episode will be at mindlove.com slash 228. Your challenge for this week is to get some movement in. You don't have to think of movement as competing with your neighbor who's obsessed with CrossFit like it's a cult. You could just go on a 20-minute walk every day. I love walking. My relationship with exercise has changed a bit since I've become a mother. I still prioritize it, I'll be honest with you. I, for some reason, cannot imagine life without prioritizing this. And I think part of that is because I was athletic when I was young. I feel like all the people I know that were really athletic when they were young have had a much easier time maintaining that. I don't know, maybe they just think of life as also including activity. So it's something that we're going to be emphasizing with our little one as he grows as well. But like I said, I used to be kind of obsessive with it. It was coming from the wrong place. But as I started to heal my mind, my relationship with movement became much healthier as well. I did yoga almost every single day before I had a baby, including while I was pregnant. And now I only have time to do yoga two to three times a week. I do an hour class one day, a 90 minute class another day, and then I try to get some at-home yoga 
or just stretching in the morning. It doesn't have to be a whole thing. And I think that's something to think about. It doesn't have to be some big thing. Can you combine activities? For example, I like to get sunlight first thing in the morning without sunglasses because it has been shown to regulate your circadian rhythm. So I feel like my energy levels are more stable throughout the day when I get sunlight first thing in the morning, along with I sleep better. So I try to get outside and just do a walk with my baby in the morning when The sun is shining, it makes me feel better about my day, and I get my movement in. And since I'm not doing yoga every single day, on the days that I'm not, I try to get a good long walk-in. So what fits with your schedule? What will make it exciting for you? Instead of walking on a treadmill, maybe you walk your neighborhood and go get a nice latte, or you hike in the mountains nearby. What works for you? Let me know how it goes. Leave a comment right here on the show notes page at mindlove.com slash 228 or message me on Instagram at mindlovemelissa. If you love this episode, please take a screenshot and share it on Instagram, tag mindlovemelissa and mindlovepodcast. If you want to support Mindlove, the best way is by joining Mindlove Premium, where you get ad-free episodes, sometimes early release episodes when I'm on top of my shit, and other bonuses like meditations, plus the entire backlog of exclusive episodes. It's basically your way of joining my personal inner circle and becoming my favorite person. You can also support one of my many amazing sponsors or leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And if you do, I just might read your review on the show. And that's all for today. So thanks for giving your mind a little love today and I'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning into your higher frequency with Mind Love. Head to mindlove.com for a free gift to keep your vibes up until next week.